All right. Well, hey, I'm so excited to see all of you. I feel like it's been a million years since we've hung out together. Uh, and that's partly because of vacation and sickness and filling in for other people. And uh, anyway, I'm glad to be here together with you. It's the end of the fall semester. You just have a couple weeks left, maybe some final exams to prepare for. Uh, I joined you in your pain. I had to turn in my final assignment this past week. Um, so pro tip for the future, if you have to write a giant paper for a doctoral program, don't wait until the week that you're sick to start writing. Um, take it from experience. That's not a good plan. Uh, but, we, but we got it done. But I appreciate your prayers uh, for our families. We kind of uh, had to endure the stomach bug that's been going around for a little while. Uh, it's the third Sunday of Advent. And so we are still continuing to think about uh, just the season that we're in, that we're thinking about the incarnation of Jesus. And, and I'm excited to spend the morning with you uh, reading from Matthew's gospel and, and thinking through his life and ministry. Uh, also just want to say thanks to, to Carrie and to Riley. I'm sure that you guys enjoyed them over the last two weeks filling in for me as they taught through the parables. Um, not only do we have capable table leaders uh, who can teach, but also interns here at the church uh, who are faithful with the word. And for that, I'm really, really grateful. So this morning, let me give you just kind of a snapshot of where we're headed. We're, we're moving out of the parables. We've been there for a couple of weeks. And we're going on to more narrative and uh, just kind of stories of the life and ministry of Jesus. And so Matthew, the, the writer of our gospel and the well-trained or the discipled scribe, as many of you heard about last week, he's bringing us new treasures as we consider who Jesus is. And this morning, we're going to see two stories in particular that do exactly that. And you see, there's a, the title of the message on the screen will come up. It's called The Rejection of the Faithful. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning, The Rejection of the Faithful. And that seems like a really depressing title um, be, because it is. Um, it, is, it is kind of sad to think about the faithful being rejected. And I think it's something that we need to be prepared for as followers of Jesus. That if we're to follow Christ faithfully, we will in a world and among people who do not love Jesus, eventually find ourselves being rejected in some ways by them. And so these passages that we're going to study this morning are instructive for us. And they will help us as we consider how we might be encouraged and be an encourager uh, to press on in faithfulness as believers when it's hard. And that's going to be what you hopefully talk about around your tables. So let's read our first, first text this morning and we'll dive in. So starting in verse 53 of Matthew 13, we'll read to the end of the chapter. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's pray before we get started this morning. Oh God in heaven, we're thankful for your word. And we pray that this morning you might open our eyes to behold the truth. That you are God, that you've sent your son Jesus to make a way for sinners like us to be reconciled to God. And yet in his earthly ministry, he faced rejection by men. And Lord, if we're to be followers of that same Jesus, we can expect to be rejected as well. But Lord, we know that Jesus suffered rejection before men 
so that we would not have to suffer rejection before you. And so God, I pray that you might help us have a biblical view of faithfulness and a biblical view of what's going on in these passages so that we might more faithfully follow you, even when it's hard, and we might follow you together as the people of God. So Lord, I pray for this morning, help me to teach with clarity, to teach your truth and nothing but it, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at two stories. This is the first one. And so if you're taking notes, number one, this is all about the rejection of Jesus. The rejection of Jesus. We find Jesus all throughout the ministry, his ministry up to this point, serving in and around the, the Sea of Galilee. But a couple of minutes, a couple of miles rather, to the west of the Sea of Galilee is his hometown, the village of Nazareth. It is not a metropolis. It's not even a city. It's, it's a little village. And Over the last couple of months and even years, perhaps, he's had crowds following him, listening to his authoritative teachings and witnessing his powerful miracles. And so naturally, as he goes back to his hometown, the local synagogue and the priests that serve in that synagogue invite him, the the hometown hero, so to speak, to come and to teach at the synagogue. And when Jesus begins to teach, the people who listen to him, the locals, the ones who've known him since he was born, are stunned. They're astonished, the word says. Why? Because in their minds, they're trying to compare the person they knew before to the person who's standing in front of them now. So he's thinking, who is this man? I mean, we we know him. We, we We know him from the time that he was a baby. We remember him growing up around us. We were his friends. His brothers and his sisters are here with us. Where did he get these things? Where did all this wisdom and miracle stuff come from? There's a saying that we still use sometimes today. And the the saying is, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. When we're familiar with a person, and then we perceive some kind of change in that person, often the people who know them best are the most skeptical. They're the most skeptical of the reality of that change. And in the case of the Nazarenes and Jesus, it was the fact that their own local kid seems to have supernatural power and wisdom that's not from men, and they can't identify the source. It's not from him, they say. He's just a man. Is it God? Is it, as the Pharisees have argued before, the prince of demons, Beelzebul? Where did this man get all these things, they wondered. And the text then says, they took offense at him. They were offended. Or another way to translate that word is, they stumbled because of him. In other words, they rejected him. Students, there will be people in our lives, in your life, as you grow in your walk with Christ, who will notice things in you that in some ways do not fit their conception of who you are. As you grow in faithfulness, as you grow in Christ-likeness, there will be people in your orbit who notice that there's something that wasn't there before. There will be people who notice the way that you're talking, the way that you're acting, the way that you're treating other people is not the same as it was when there was a kind of equilibrium between you and me. And often, unfortunately, that That noticing, that awareness of those changes is often met with contempt. And it's tragic because the fact is there are many who will notice 
the work of God and reject it. And therefore, in their minds, they have rejected God. So in other words, as as the Lord Jesus is sanctifying you by his spirit, there will be people in your life who come to grow contemptuous or uh, skeptical or offended at your life because it exposes something about their own life. God at work in you exposes something in their own life and they come to reject it. And by rejecting that thing, they actually find themselves rejecting God. So if God is at work in you, you can wager it's a matter of time before some people reject you. And sometimes this text says it may come from the people who knew you best. And that's what Jesus says, right? He says, uh, look at verse 57. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Notice he's identifying himself as a prophet. A prophet is someone who speaks as God's messenger. And other than John, who we've read about in the gospel of Matthew, prophets haven't been around for 400 years among the people of Israel. So he's actually answering their question, right? They're saying, where did this man get all these things? Where did he get these mighty works? Where does he get all this wisdom? And Jesus says, well, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and among his own household. In other words, he's answering the question, you know where I got these things from. I'm a prophet. These things come from the Lord. But then notice in verse 58, it says, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. What a puzzling verse. I mean, we confess as Christians that Jesus is Lord of creation, right? He is God the Son. He is the Word of God made flesh, as we heard last week from Pastor Brian. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Nothing is too hard for him. But verse 58 says, He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So how do we understand this verse? Wouldn't many mighty works serve Jesus in convincing these locals that he's legit? Wouldn't many signs and wonders help his former neighbors and and local uh, school children, the people who saw him grow up? Wouldn't Wouldn't those miracles ease their offense and ease their rejection? Did their unbelief somehow limit Jesus' abilities to perform these works? Well, the answer, I think, is seen in how Jesus has ministered generally thus far. Usually, in the Gospels and in Scripture, faith precedes or comes before works. In other words, uh, we don't see a sign in order to believe. We believe, and then our belief is met with God's response. I mean, you think about the woman with the issue of blood. She didn't go to Jesus unbelieving and then him heal her. And she goes, oh, now I believe, right? She said, if I could just touch his garment, I'll be made well. I believe that he's able to do what no one else on the earth has been able to do for me. I believe that he's able to heal me. And so when she goes in faith to Christ, her faith is met with a miracle. And yet, verse 58 tells us, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So in other words, people have to come to Jesus believing in him 
And then Jesus responds to their faith with mighty works. So because of the people's rejection of the wisdom of his teaching, Jesus responded with a little evidence of his power. And students, we as followers of Jesus believe that God is powerful. We believe that God is able to save. We believe that Jesus is the Savior. We believe that he's able to do everything in his power to promote his glory and his sovereign plan in the world. Nothing will stop him. His works are invincible. And so we go believing, we go in prayer, we go to his word, believing that he's able to do these things. And sometimes we will come upon neighbors and family members and loved ones and locals who do not believe and look at the same instance in your life or look at the same circumstance with unbelief. And they'll see something totally different. So I heard a story about a guy, two two men, having a conversation about the existence of God. One was a, a religious fundamentalist and one was a, an atheist. And the, the religious guy says, I mean, how can you believe that there is no God? And the, the atheist just says, well, I mean, it's not like I don't have reasons. Like I've tried to like pray or think about God or think about what there might be. And he's like, and I even, I even prayed to him when I was in need one time. I was out hiking in the woods and I got lost and I was in Alaska and it was snowing and bliz- the, the, the blizzard was strong. I couldn't see. I was lost. And I, I just fell to my knees and said, well, God, if, if you're real, then, then save me. Because if I, if I don't get saved, I'm going to die out here. And the religious person said, how do you not believe you're here? You didn't die. And he goes, no, that's not God. That's because some Eskimos were walking by and they showed me the way back to the camp. Right? Your unbelief is going to totally change your perception of reality. In the same way, your belief, your faith in the ability of God to do the impossible is going to change the way you perceive the world. All that to say, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when an unbelieving world rejects your testimony of what God has done in your life. Don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. They don't believe. They won't see. And we need the Spirit of God. They need the Spirit of God to open their eyes because they're blind, just like we were. All right, quick little application, and then we'll move on to the next story. We've already noticed that those who do not believe in Jesus will reject Jesus' followers, right? That's what we've just been talking about. And we need to be prepared for that because we live in a world that does not know and love Christ. A commitment to Jesus in this life will eventually, don't miss this, a commitment to Jesus in this life will eventually lead to disappointment. It's not that Jesus will disappoint us, but the response of others in our life will. And so if you are counting the cost correctly of following Christ, you need to be prepared for disappointment. Now, those disappointments are light momentary afflictions in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us, but they are disappointments nonetheless. But let's consider an application for us in this room. Failure to believe that the Spirit is at work in another believer's life will lead to a quenching of the Spirit's work 
in your life. Let me say that again. Failure to believe that the Spirit is at work in another believer's life will lead to a quenching of the Spirit's work in your life. All of us as Christians, by God's grace, are growing in Christ's likeness. That means, hopefully, that our behaviors and our thoughts and our words will be changing from one degree of glory to the next, to be more and more conformed to Christ. And the fact is, this is just the reality of life. It's not something to lament. It's not something to be upset about. It's just the reality of life that God's grace will lead some believers to grow more quickly and in different areas than others in the same season. So we could just do a cross-section of like ninth grade in America, right? And Christians in ninth grade in America. Some will be growing more rapidly. Some will be conforming to Christ in different ways. Some will not be. God's spirit, like the wind, blows where it wishes. We're not all the same. We're not all in the same season of life. We're not all going through the same issues. We're not all dealing with the same problems. We're not all wrestling with the same kinds of questions. And that's actually a sign of beauty in the church. The reason why we're all together in this place at this time is because God has seen fit to put these members and these members together to make a whole body. Well, of course they're not going to be the same. If everything were a nose, Paul says, where would be the sense of hearing? But when we respond as believers to someone's faithfulness and growth with skepticism and rejection, and offense when it exposes something in us or leads us to compare ourselves to them, just like the Nazarenes are doing with Jesus. We are forfeiting, just like the Nazarenes did, the opportunity for God to move in our lives. All right, so when I see growth in my brother or in my sister, It is not an opportunity for us to compare ourselves with them and and be offended. It's not an opportunity for me to to look at them with skepticism and say, well, I bet they're just doing that because they want to be seen as better than everybody else. It's not an opportunity for us to then reject them. What if, what if God's work of sanctification in the people around your table He's doing that in part to expose your need to grow in dependence in Him. Like what if, what if God is putting people in your life in front of you who are growing in Christ-likeness so that you might be stirred up to grow in Christ-likeness? It's not there for you to look around and say either, A, I'm awesome. I'm way more spiritual than anybody else in the room. And it's not given to you for B, to look around and go, I'm the worst. Everybody's more mature than me. It's like, I don't even know God. Like neither of those things are God's intention. God is intending to conform the body of Christ into the image of Christ. But when we look around at one another, with skepticism or offense or rejection, we're forfeiting 
and quenching the Spirit in our own life. That's not God's design. Don't believe that lie. Don't try to continue in the flesh what was begun by the Spirit. That's Paul's whole point to the Galatians, right? So we must, therefore, be marked by humility. We're all growing. We're all, by God's grace, being carried along. None of us is going to swagger into heaven. You know what I mean? Like, none of us is going to have our chest poked out and strut into the kingdom. We're being carried. So we approach this with humility, and we say, God, what are you showing me? What are you teaching me? Where can I grow? How can I be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus? How can your spirit, what what do I need from your spirit? How can I pray more faithfully? How can I align my thoughts and my will with your word? Those who notice Christ-likeness in others have a cause to rejoice and to thank God for his work rather than compare and envy and reject and take offense. And those who are growing have every opportunity to humbly reveal before others that as Paul said, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So don't reject Jesus. And don't reject the Spirit in his work in your life and in the work that he's doing in other people's lives. We want to be sensitive to the work of God in the body of Christ. And that's always a cause for joy and humility and worship and thanksgiving and growth, not despair or idolatry or self-righteousness or discontentment. If you live your life that way, it will wither your soul. All right, we got to move on. Chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. So second story, second point this morning, the rejection of John. Matthew is giving us a little bit of a flashback. So he's connecting these two stories, right? Look again at verse one. At that time, which means it's not as accurate and precise as you might think it is in 2021. It's, it's more of a, that was around the same time as Herod, the Tetrarch, which is the son of Herod the Great. So you remember Matthew 1 and 2, Herod hears from the wise men that the Messiah has been born and goes and tries to kill all of the little boys in Bethlehem. His son is Herod the Tetrarch, the one who we're reading about now. Herod heard about the fame of Jesus. 
So he's hearing stories about ministry in Galilee and ministry in Nazareth. And he's saying to his servants, this must be John back from the dead. Because recently, as we'll find out here in the text, John has been killed by Herod. All his conscience allows him to think is that John the Baptist has come back to torment him because he's been killed unlawfully. Matthew then give us, gives us the reason why he has that kind of conscience. He killed a prophet. Right? The, the, the crowds believe that John was a prophet, a messenger of God, and he killed him just to save face in front of some birthday guests. Now, the last we heard about John, we knew he was in prison. Remember, he sent some followers to confirm that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But now we get the full story. John was in prison because he called out Herod for divorcing his wife and Herodias divorcing Herod's brother, Philip, to then get married. So he is married to his brother's ex-wife. And so John is calling them out. You're the ruler over the Jews and you marry and, and unmarry unlawfully. You, you, it's not right to have your brother's wife. And John is faithful to call out the ruler when he's being wicked. Now, the text tells us that Herod and Herodias both want John dead. But Herod recognized that killing John would cause a political riot. And remember, the Roman Empire is in control. And they really don't much care who's over Judea. And so any kind of offense or problem or struggle or issue that, that that ruler would cause for the Roman empire would just be changed out with a new ruler. So Herod is trying to be politically savvy since the Jews he ruled over considered John a prophet. So he just put him in prison. I'm not going to kill him, but I'm going to get him off of the street. I'm going to get him away from the crowds. I'm going to put him in prison. Notice here, John's suffering being put in prison was not an indication of punishment or failure or being out of the will of God. It was actually precisely because he was faithful to speak the truth, even to the powerful that he had to endure hardship. So just quick little aside, don't assume that the struggles and the hardships that you endure in this life are a result of your unfaithfulness to the Lord in some way. We don't believe in karma. It's not, I do bad things and bad things happen, or I do good things and good things happen. That's, that's not how it works. Everything is of grace. And if you're a Christian, God's stance towards you is always delight because he sees the perfect work of Christ. He's not punishing you. That punishment has been poured out on Jesus for you. The hardships that you endure now, therefore, are for a different reason. It's not punitive, it's for your sanctification. It's for your good. So at Herod's birthday party, back to the story, Herodias' daughter, probably Salome, <clears throat> provided some of the entertainment to the crowd. Her dancing apparently was so enthralling that Herod responds with a massive offer in front of all these guests. And if you read other gospels, it sounds much like the king in the book of Esther. He offers her up to half my kingdom. Whatever you want. And Herod was sorry that he made that offer because Salome went to her mother and she asks for John's head. Now, Herod could have suffered a little bit of embarrassment and then chastised his stepdaughter for a ridiculous request 
and then moved on to something else. But as we've already seen in verse 5, Herod fears people. He feared the crowds, which is why he didn't kill John before. And now he fears his guests. Often our fears of men will result in us making poor decisions. Our fear of man that we hold in our hearts day after day, and all of us, all of us have this. Our fear of man will result in us making poor decisions. We will be rash in our choices in order to maintain some kind of perceived status before other people, just like Herod is trying to do here. But while we may not always get burned when we do that, others around us often are devastated. So don't miss this. Herod's fear of man and commitment to be seen as strong before others led to John's illegal execution. Like his sin, John paid the price. So don't miss this. When we sin, when we find ourselves wrestling with different ideas about who we are and how we want to be perceived and our status before other people, we may think that our capitulation to culture or our own wicked desires of our heart aren't hurting anybody. Like it's just about me. It's not, I'm not doing something to somebody else. You don't know that. You don't know what you don't know. So don't believe the lie that your sins stay with you. Now, the last verse of this is important. John's disciples came and took the body and buried it. They honored John. And then they went to Jesus. They honored John and then they went to Jesus. They told him of John's death. But it also seems, the text isn't super explicit about this, but it seems as though the disciples of John after John's death went to Jesus, told him the news and then began to follow him. Understanding John's message would lead someone to Jesus. And that's what we see with these disciples. This is all to say as we conclude that there's an alternative for you and for me to rejecting God and his people. That's not the only way to live. There's an alternative to fear of man and pride in your own heart. There's another way to live than to be in constant competition with others for status or perception or notoriety. It's the way of humility. It's the way the Son of God took when he first came to earth as a little baby. It's the way he offers to each of us, even now, this Advent season. So my hope and my prayer as we conclude, as we pray, we would do two things. First, we would recognize that faithfulness to Jesus in this world is hard and it's going to lead to rejection in some ways. And so we need to be both the encourager and we need to receive encouragement. It is not good that man would be alone. Like that's that's before the fall. God notices something that should not be before the fall. I got to fix this. We need to make this right. Isolation, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps spiritually. It's not in this book. You need the people of God around you who love you and know you and want what's best for you 
to speak into your life in such a way that oftentimes is going to be really hard to hear. Like, I can't, I can't convince you of this if you don't really believe that you need this, but I'm telling you this is true. You need people in your life that you trust, love you, but are totally unimpressed with you. You get that? You need people in your life who love you, who wants what's best for you, but are not starstruck by you. Like I have friends in my life who I know they love me and I trust their counsel and they are good friends, but they don't care at all that I'm trying to get a doctorate. They don't care at all that I am one of the pastors on staff at Lakeview, whatever. That's not impressive to me. That doesn't make me change the way I'm going to speak to you when I need to speak something hard in your life. I need people, you need people in your life who can speak difficult things to you and you not automatically receive it as they're trying to hurt me. No, they're trying to help you. And if you spurn people in your life who try to be honest with you, again, your soul will wither. You may think that you're protecting yourself, you're harming yourself. So that's the first thing. You need to know that it's going to be hard and you need encouragement and you need to be the encourager. And number two, we need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be honest with ourselves and say to an unbelieving world and to believers, is my life and the way that I live and the way that I speak and the way that I treat other people Would that be rightly met like John? Would it lead people to Jesus? Or would it cause people to reject Jesus? Like would my my life, if it's laid before somebody else, would I be like John, a, a guidepost, a sign pointing to Jesus? Or would I be a sign like Herod pointing away from him? Now, apart from the work of the Spirit, all of us are going to point away from Him. None of us measure up. No one is good. No one is righteous. We need the gospel. (laughs) We We need the Spirit of God to make our dead hearts start beating again and come alive. We need, even as Christians, we need to be renewed in our spirit day by day. So this is not, I'm not asking you to do this exercise in self flagellation and penance. I'm not asking you to whip yourself. I just want you to be honest with yourself. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. My hope and prayer is that that's what he would lead all of us to do. Because the Christian life is a life of continual repentance. And that repentance leads to joy. That's what I want for you. So let me pray.